I believe that if you stop doing stuff that challenges you mentally, challenges your cognition, then it starts slowing down. And if you want to stay active, healthy, fit, you got to use your mind. If we start with NCS now and sort of go backwards, yep. one of the, the interesting parts about what you've been through is multiple transactions of the same business. Yep. I think that in itself is quite a, an interesting discussion. Yep. So can you unpack just where you are today? And I think let's reverse engineer that. Yep. It, it would be a really interesting way to look at it. So yep. yeah, take us through NCS and how it looks and then where it all started. So NCS is a big business. So we've got 12,000 consultants throughout Southeast Asia. We had Arc Group and we built that. And if I could wind backwards through that, Arc Group was the leading digital technology services business in this region. And NCS is the leading in Singapore. Talk digital, I talk mobile apps, artificial intelligence. I wouldn't change my journey in any way. At every point, there's a learning opportunity. I remember a, uh, a boss of mine at a previous employer before I started InfoReady turned around and said, ah, oh, we'll see you back because nine out of 10 entrepreneurs fail. I'm like, great. I haven't seen him since. <laughs> but in that, it was kind of like, well, yeah, nine out of 10 might fail. But it's like the next time around, do they fail and then go again and go again and go again? And it's keeping, keeping with what you're trying to do. And to me, that's the most important thing. Don't be afraid to learn. Everything I do now, it's kind of like, you've got to do it. You've got to learn from something because no one knows how to do it the first time. Tristan, how are we, my friend? We're good today, feeling great. Phil, how, how great are we talking? I don't know. I wish there was a measure when you woke up in the morning. Like I've got, I, I wear a whoop, right? And it tells you how you slept. And um, I wish there was a measure that said, today I'm feeling 92% or 87%. <laughs> Although if you did that, your whole day would be psychologically based on a number. I'd agree. And I have noticed this about you in the short time I've got to know you like to measure things. Absolutely. Including yep. your uh, biological age. Yep. Yep. So we're going to dig into that at some point. You're an interesting cat, my friend. Yeah. Um, but, you know, today is, um, yeah, we talk about outperformance on this podcast and we've got business leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs of all sorts of types that uh, get involved. And I think there's plenty of wisdom you can unpack. I think there's plenty about your story that's very unique to you and interesting. And I think the key in our conversations that, I, that we have is very much about looking at that relationship between who someone is and how things start to happen. Yeah. Um, so maybe you're ready to rock and roll in that. Let's have some fun. Let's do it. Um, so just for context, for anyone who doesn't know you, and I'm just going to give like a bit of a window to yep. your world, is that you're a real winner, right? Um, so that's the first thing. And I think there's something we're going to pull out in terms of your approach to success and achieving. Um, you've been through three transactions of fundamentally the same business, mm -hmm. um, but there's been some wild, interesting rides along the way. And I think there's a lot of learning in that. There are plenty of business owners that don't consider what it means to exit their business or to transact. Mm -hmm. um, so there's plenty there. And I think the the other interesting piece is the space you play in. It's very uh, front of the uh, the trend of uh, where where the world is going in terms of data, technology, uh, and, and intelligence. So um, plenty to play with but may, maybe take us back i'm going to throw the word word triathlon on the table yeah, and maybe okay. you can you can just paint the picture of uh so people can get their head around who you are okay yeah so triathlon so oh geez i um i grew up in a family with four kids right so i'm the youngest of four siblings and the next one up from me my sister is a champion runner so if you can imagine being the youngest of four competing to be good at something, right? Get recognized effectively. And you've got a sister who's kind of on track to become an Olympic athlete. 
you got to do something, right? <laughs> and I was a good runner, but I wasn't a great runner, right? So I thought, triathlon, here's a sport relatively new at the time. And I became really good at it and I actually found I was a really good cyclist. So running, if you can run and you can ride, it doesn't matter about the swim as long as you can just, you know, hold on to someone's feet as they pull you through the water. <laughs> so two out of three ain't bad. Two out of three is not bad because, you know, it's the last one you want to be good at. So I was a really good runner, but I wasn't, I wasn't Olympic level like she was. So I took that. I think I started, my first one would have been like I was 13, 14. And quickly I found I was quite good at it. And then by the time I was 17, I was, um, I'd raced a world championships in Italy in a duathlon, not a triathlon. So that was without the swim, mm -hmm. two runs. And um, I did quite well at that. I was probably the youngest on the Australian team at the time in the juniors, world championships. Um, that was fun. First trip overseas to go race for your country. 100%. And um, some big names went along and yeah, it was quite cool. And then did a race in uh, in Israel, which was like kind of called the Maccabee Games, like the Jewish Olympics. Um, did really well at that, although had a pretty traumatic experience over there, which kind of led to something. Um, but I found I was quite good at it. And I was doing like as a young kid, well, not young, but not old enough to be kind of an adult. I was doing semi-professional racing. Mm. So I was doing professional races, but not the big, big ones that you see on TV. Yeah. And I was okay at them, but I kind of, you know, I was a professional. So I technically got there. And I was racing in a few of them. And I remember, you know, kind of doing all right in some of them. And yeah, it was, it was good. It's good fun. And I was definitely performing at that level. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yep. So this, tra this traumatic situation. Yeah. What was that? Well, two things happened. So, 97 Maccabee Games, the is it's known for what happened was it's like it was an Olympics, all the national teams march into a stadium. So, marching into a stadium, there's a bridge that you walk over, a little bridge, and it collapsed. And, um, and what happened there was four Australians died on that bridge that night. Um, and it was really big chaos and you know, everything that happened. There was a, a few injured, you know, some people long-term injuries from it and stuff like that. Um, it's pretty traumatic as a 17-year-old yeah. yeah. being part of it. You don't know how you react. And then what happens, right? So then the next part of it was going on to race, right? Like make a decision are we going to race. Triathlon's the last race of most – it's either the first or the last of a carnival, right? I think the Olympics do it first. At the time, they were doing it last. So – I'm one of kind of the athletes who was sponsored by Maccabi in Australia to go. So I, I felt I had an obligation and I thought I could win the race, right? So I um, I went on to do it. But 42 degrees, I think it was that day, the Mediterranean Sea. I'm not the best swimmer, so I drink, so I get, take a lot of water in. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> imagine the Mediterranean. It's like drinking pure salt, salt on a yes. hot day, right? It'd be floating. <laughs> not a great combination. In fact, <laughs> I think salt's good for you in the biohacking space, but not when you're freaking doing it at 42 degrees. And halfway through the bike ride, I just I can't remember most of it. Like after that, like it was, I started hallucinating. I was dehydrated, got a medical penalty, came back in, ran, don't remember to run, finished the race. What it taught me at the time was I had such determination to win that race, like more than I ever had in my life um, because of what had happened. And as I went through that race at the end, I kind of pushed myself so hard, I probably could have killed myself during that race. And, you know, medical experts have told me since that what I did was pretty stupid, but I actually lost control. Like I don't think I made a conscious decision to keep going. I made, it was in my mind, but subconsciously I just kept going. I actually don't remember the run. I don't remember much of it. I remember the beginning, the end, maybe you know, getting some medical treatments at the end of it. Um, came third in my division at the end of it, which was great. Um, but you know, I was winning the bike before I got the penalty, and um, that's what happened. So I've always been a little bit, you know, how far can you push yourself? And that's kind of fed into the rest of my life.
Well, it's one of the reasons I asked the question, and yeah. that's such a traumatic start. Yeah. Um, and it's for anyone, 17 year old, right, yeah. who's out there, at, you're wanting to do their best, had well, probably had a lot of stories in your head as well at that, yeah. in that moment. Yeah. And I think it shapes those moments shape a lot of your future. And there's probably many other uh, shaping moments, which we probably will unpack today as well. Yeah. But yeah. maybe if you can draw us forward and just start to, to tell us about how that has shaped who you are as a business person. Yeah. It's, I'm an analytical person. So I think, I don't know if it was before that, after that, I'm a left-hander, so I'm creative and I'm a technologist, right? So typically technologists are they're, they're inquisitive, right? They're scientific, like they have to know everything about everything. I've, I've never actually gone through and said, was it that that drove me to be that? Because you know, now that I've done something that's kind of pushed my boundaries a bit too far, am I now analytical because I need to understand everything before I do it to make sure I'm not going to go do the same thing again? Mm. Or is it just part of my left-handed left you know, side of thinking, creativity, and being a technology person? Um, I reckon it's a bit of a combination. But winding forward, everything I do is analytical now. Um, I won't go take a supplement without knowing what what's in it. I won't, you know, I won't. I was going to say apply for a job, but I can't remember last time I did that. But um, <laughs> but I won't, you know, buy a business, do an investment, anything like that, without understanding every bit of detail, which can annoy certain people. It's a very blue analytical side of me. But that's like I when I when I buy something, I want to know how it's put together. I'm not the ultimate technologist. So I'm not going to unscrew a remote control car to see the chipset that's in it. Mm. But if I'm going to build a mobile app, I've got to know all the components and how it works together. So I do a lot of um, development and construction, just a bit of fun on the side. And I love it because you can see the raw materials and picking the right bits and pieces together. So that's kind of driven off that. Um, and I think there's a combination of, you know, when you do something and you kind of push yourself too far, you can't remember and you can't understand what's happened. Now you want to know everything before you do it. Mm. So you, because if you look at your story, and I'd like you to share a bit about this, you're yep. a serial entrepreneur. You, yep. You've 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 got these stories of part of you that probably aren't particularly public. And then you've got NCS, and and yep. perhaps you can talk about how that all started with you know uh, the original business that has fundamentally morphed on various times, right? Yeah. But I guess in unpacking that, and I think this is really useful for people to hear, is there's this um, uh, combination of who you are in in those. Um, in some cases, you probably haven't been as analytical as you'd like. Yeah. So, yep. can you take us back to back to your first entrepreneurial sort of experience, and yep. then let's look at let's look at how you've built up to it where you yeah, are today. Yeah. So definitely not analytical, right? <laughs> in the early <laughs> days, my first ones were in uni. Um, I used to buy computers from a local computer guy put it together. I didn't actually put it together and then resell it, right? Pretty straightforward. You old desktop, pretty easy. That was okay. Got me through uni. Then came the year 2000. Everyone was freaking out. Like, what's going to happen when the Y2K bug happens? The plane's going to you know, not be able to take off and we're going to have hospitals well. crash and all that sort of stuff. So I sold the Y2K bug fix, which was a semantic software package. It was $80 and I used to sell it for $250, right? And I'd install it in people's computers because they were too scared and nothing ever happened. Um, I'll teach people MYOB because I learned that at uni. So there were all these different businesses, services. I then got into one with a mate. We had this brilliant idea because we'd just been to India. We bought these blankets for like $3 and they were so comfortable. We said, what if we put them into AFL colors, right? What if we if we go to the thing? And that's, yeah, this is before the days where everyone thought of ethical sourcing and stuff like that. But we did. We thought about what if we go to the places, like we're not going to buy them from shops. We're going to buy them from huts on the street. And then we're going to ship them to Australia. We're going to do it the right way. 
So we got him made into different colors. I'm a Hawthorne supporter. He's a Melbourne supporter. We tried to, yeah, they tried to, they didn't really even make them. They found them in the right colors, right? So they were kind of genuine products of whatever. And these blankets that we bought are the offshoots of all the other blankets. So they're the crap materials that are left over. They are so warm. Yeah, like man. we had heaps of, I had them at home and whatever from previous trips. So when it got them done, the analytical part of me, which didn't kick in, was to go, shit, can I actually sell them in Australia? <laughs> so, so we brought, 400 blankets back, not in AFL colors, but we had some guy who was going to make them and we had some samples of it, brought them back, showed it to the first person and they said, this is awesome. This is like an amazing product. He goes, people would take this to the footy. They're so warm. Do you have a license to sell AFL products? I'm like, oh shit, do you need one? <laughs> then you find that there's a company that has a license for AFL blankets already. So we're, we're done, right? So we had to offload 400 blankets. I think, um, I think it was Ishka. I don't know if they're still around, but it was yeah. Ishka was a, a store and we kind of took them in there one day after like three months of trying to sell them retail price and whatever and markets and, and everything. And, you became a and we just said, look, can you, <laughs> can you take these off our hands? They cost us like 200 bucks. They're like, we'll give you 300. Like, yay, we made some money. But, um, but the other part of it as well, shipping, transport, all this stuff, we knew nothing. Like you can imagine 10 rickshaws in India lined up full of blankets. That's how I got them to the dock. To a guy who my father-in-law had introduced me to because he was an importer of um, of, of, of material of uh, clothing, so he an importer in Australia. I had to get him to that guy, and then all of a sudden there's all these costs that came out that I knew nothing about, and oh my god, just you need the analytical side, but it teaches you a lot. <laughs> we learned a lot that day about doing your research before you actually do something. Like great ideas are good, yeah, but um, can you sell them? And that's my number one learning of any business now is like. Before you buy a product and get into market, know that there's a customer on the other end who's going to buy one of them. Because if someone will buy one, you can sell 100. But if no one's going to buy them, then you're stuff, stuck with a good idea. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a cliche to say, we'll do your homework. Yeah. Um, but the number of times we don't do our homework and, and it bites us in the, in the bottom later yeah. on um, is amazing, right? What, what, where, do you, yeah. you know, where do you see a guy that's fundamentally fairly analytical at that, even at that time, you were still had that mindset. Yeah. Where does it come from, in your opinion? Um, sure. The analytical part, I, I don't know. It's a, I, I don't know. Like I do a lot of work with Swinburne with the School of Entrepreneurial uh, Entrepreneurship, and I can't remember the full name for it. But anyway, um, I do a lot of work with them, AGSE, and um, we train a lot of some of that sort of stuff. Teach people, but I think you need some sort of innate, like, personal. Um, it's got to be natural. It's got to be in. It's got to be in you to some extent to kind of think that way. But it's a taking that entrepreneurial entrepreneurship to the analytical level that's really important. So the analytical part, everyone's got a a personal style of some sort. So it's kind of built into your your psychology. Um, analytical will be built into mine somewhere. I probably didn't know it until you kind of unearthed it when you're later on and I reckon I probably had that the whole way and I always joke about it I'm creative because I'm left-handed right there's a lot of people who are not left-handed that are creative right creative, yeah. um uh so so to some extent that probably comes from it as well but having to think through all those parts but yeah don't know mm, yeah the, well this it's the shortcut that I guess you you've learned from right yeah and um the if we start with NCS now and sort of go backwards, yeah. One of the, the interesting parts about what you've been through is multiple transactions of the same business. Yeah, I think that in itself is quite a an interesting discussion. Yeah. So can you 
unpack just where you are today, and I think let's reverse engineer that. Yep. It, it would be a really interesting way to look at it. So, yep. yeah, take us through NCS and how it looks and then where it all started. Yeah, so NCS is a business, not not that well-known in Australia, but it is a big business. So we've got 12,000 consultants throughout Southeast Asia. Most of them reside in Singapore, so it's Singapore-based, Singapore-owned, um, owned by the Singtel Group. Singtel also, also owned Optus, which is obviously it's the largest telco in their full holdings of their group and they own um, a percentage of what we call associates or affiliates of telcos around the region. So they have a the biggest telco in Asia Pacific, right? So NCS is a big business. Um, we had Arc Group and we built that. And if I could wind backwards through that, um, Arc Group was the leading digital technology services business in this, in this region and NCS is the leading in Singapore. So we created this business NCS Next and we kind of put them all together to kind of create those services. So talk digital, I talk mobile apps, artificial intelligence. It'd be remiss of me not to say generative AI. I mean, we've been doing a lot of that for quite a while. So <laughs> we're not just a buzzword, we actually do it. Um, yeah, cloud computing, quantum even, cyber, all that sort of stuff, all the cool technology stuff. It's really driving the future of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so NCS do that. We then built the Australian piece two years ago when they bought us. They bought another company called, so they bought Arc Group and they bought Dialog and they bought a few other small ones, 8020 and Riley. Um, and they started to build a presence in Australia. So they've dominated Singapore. They've got 8,000 of those consultants in Singapore. Now they're getting into another big region in Australia. Um, so that's how we've, we've started. They were the Singapore version of our business. So when we, had a business and I'll go a bit backwards of how we ended up there because I think it's really interesting. Um, we wanted, we built ourselves to a scale in Australia and we wanted to go into Asia, all right? So we looked around the region and said, okay, well, we've got a business. We know we can grow. We've tried before in previous businesses to enter Asia and it's really, really hard, right? It's unless you're local, you understand the business, they're the best in that region. So we said, what would happen? And we call this choose your own adventure. We said to our staff, what would happen if we chose the buyer of our business, and we knew we were going to sell it. We bought it back. We knew we had to turn it around and we were going to sell it at some point in time. And we said, what if we choose our own buyer? And we chose NCS and we said, because like Singapore is culturally quite similar to Australia. They're really strong at what they do. And what would happen if we can end up there? And we try to make that happen. Yeah, nice. Yep. So one of the philosophies you have is you know, writing your press release, yep. right? So I assume that comes up in here, but yeah. reverse engineering your buyer, is, it's, a, it's a big idea. It is. And we were part owned by a private equity firm. So imagine walking into a private equity firm and go, this is our buyer. And they're like, oh, we've got to scope the market. Let's go get a, let's go get a Credit Suisse, a Goldman Sachs, or, you know, a, a Macquarie. Let's get one of those guys to come and scope the market out for us and find out who the buyers are. And let's, you know, work out everyone out and get a competitive price. I'm like, no, I reckon we can get the price off them. Imagine having that conversation with them and, you know, convincing them that they could do it and then trying to write your own deal. And yeah, the whole time I think they were like, no, you're crazy. It's not going to happen, but we'll give you a, we'll give you a crack at it. And we actually made it happen. <laughs> so, so this is an interesting part about the, the whole discussion is, you know, you're an entrepreneur at heart yeah, and you're having that sort of conversation, which is very corporate, yeah. which is very constrained around, you know, scoping an idea and yeah. being really clear around what it needs to look like and methodically mapping the market. Yeah. Um, you know, when you look at the, the merger into NCS and, and, and being an entrepreneur, yeah. tell us about what that looks like culturally. Yeah, so there's a lot of people, and everyone thinks the same thing, corporate startups, right, and they don't mix. 
And the reason I think that is because, you know, one has a corporate structure and you know, salaried employees and no exits and whatever, and it's just a, a hierarchy and they've got different processes, procedures. And then in the startup world, you think there's, you know, people that are building these things, you know, at, on, a, on a minimum, on the shoestring, trying to operate them, trying to make good margins and then make them attractive for sale. We had that in-between layer because we were corporate with Melbourne IT and then we ended up being, which was the ARC group, and then we ended up being with, with NCS. But if you look at the philosophy behind the business and how the business is run and what they stand for, it can be exactly the same thing. And that's where the mergers work well. So we looked at like an NCS and us, we've got the same impact vision, the same things that we want to achieve, the same culture. So yes, they've got a few more processes and procedures and being a Singaporean-based telco, it's there are some harder procurement and other standards and procedures and stuff that go in, but we fundamentally want to achieve the same thing. Um, and if, you, if you're aligned on that, then the integration works because if, if everyone's got the same North Star, then that's fine. And the North Star for us is not to sell the business again. It's to make impactful or meaningful impact to people using digital technology. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. So we look beyond all the, you know, the rigors and stuff that come in and, and work within it. But at the same time, we also consult them on, on it too and say, well, look, you know, you can't go and do this in Australia because when you, like for them, they're new to Australia. So you can't go into Australia and go and be, you know, have this uh, 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 procurement policy that says you can't do blah, 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 X, Y, and Z, right? Because it just doesn't work. So because they listen, because we've got the, shared, the same shared objective of, you know, we've got the same press release to some extent of what we're trying to achieve, it works okay. So the integration, the integration happens. So we kind of, as long as we align on that, what the outcome is, everything else just matches. Well, is it outcome and accepting that we have strengths and weaknesses that we need to complement each other on? I mean, your you do, ability yeah. to understand the Australian market, there's there's some that would say, well, thanks very much, Tristan, we'll do it our way. Yeah. And there's others that will, will actually collaborate with you. It sounds like you've got a collaborative relationship. We've got collaborative, yeah. So we've had both, right? So in previous worlds, previous owners who have come in and said, oh, startup guys are just here to kind of build a business, exit, take their cash, drive the fancy cars and walk away, right? Whereas in this world, it's actually different. They're actually they're collaborative. They listen. You know, they they respect what you've got, and I think that's important for people buying businesses is to look at it. And most of the time, people look at a business and go, "Oh, that found." Yeah, when we buy, the founders are going to leave, right? We're a proven um, story of founders that haven't left because we stayed with the first business, we stayed with the second business, and we stayed with the third business. We're still there, mm. right? So when you go into a transaction and, and they go, oh, no, these guys are going to leave, well, we haven't left yet. So like, we're well, not going to. And yeah. that's, that's, that in itself is really curious because to start yeah. with, right, that, you know, often when I sit down with a, a business owner and we're talking strategy, yeah. we've got to ask, well, what's your, what do you want? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all defined around your yeah. tolerance and, yeah. and needs and, and vision and life beliefs. And there's so much that's integrated around a human and, and their business, right? Like, think, what what have you noticed about that as you've evolved? Yeah, that's exactly it, the human, mm. right? Ask the question. One of my good mates went in, sold a business, and he said to him, I want to be out. Like, I'm handing you the keys. It's a great business, but I just don't have the passion to run this business anymore. So you take over, right? Then, so he's transparent about it. Most founders will tell you what they want to do. I want to leave in three years. We've got one in the business at the moment. I want to leave in 18 months. Great. That's good. Let's build everything around it. You've got a brilliant business. We bought the business. Um, or ask them what they want to do. Like if, if when they asked me initially with NCS, what do you want to do? I said, well, I've sold the business three times, right? I kind of the first time I sold it, I was anxious as to what do I do next? I was 39. I was like, shit, like 
I'm too young to retire, right? Yeah. I, you know, I do this longevity stuff. I want to work till I'm like 100, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kills your cognition if you're sitting at home just investing in, you know, Mickey Mouse shares and stuff like that. <laughs> Who knows? So, but ask them. If you ask me the question, I'll say, I want to build a career, not because I need to financially, because I'm passionate about what I do, mm. right? And um, and therefore, you know, that's the type of person I am. And then to interview the person when you're buying the business, not just the business itself, and then make that call. So businesses, founders who want to exit and leave, typically you can tell in the deal structure, they're happy to take more upfront, less in the future. There's different models on it. Yeah. But just ask, ask a question. Yeah, you got to ask a question. And, and there's, you know, there's this sort of human dynamic that might play out I've seen before, and I wonder yeah. what you've experienced with this in that, we're doing a deal and we want to maximize our return, but sometimes people say what they think the buyer wants to hear yeah. versus saying what they really want. Yeah. Have you noticed that, whether it's with yourself or you know maybe a, a need to explore that idea? Where is that coming up in negotiations? In yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's um, I mean, there's always an element of it, right? I've always worked with the same transaction team um, for all the businesses we sold because it's, yeah, they're the people selling it with you, right? And... I feel if you tell if you tell them what they want to hear, it's going to bite you in the ass at some stage if it's not right. Because you know they're doing their due diligence. People are going to find as long as you do due diligence properly, you're going to find stuff, right? Um, personally, I feel with founders, I think if you ask them the question, they're going to tell you what they like, what they what they, they genuinely really want. want. Mm-hmm. Because most people have the respect of the fact that if I sell you a business, I'm making a lot of money. Like you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you something that's not right like in two years time i'm not gonna leave i've seen founders like that so mm. don't get me wrong we've had ones in our businesses that have kind of said we're well, going to stick here for life and then three months after you buy the business they're on their way out yeah, they're, they're, they're right? disengaged they're, they're disengaged mm. they had a plan the whole time stuff like that problem with that is like if that ever gets found out properly there's, there's probably claws and clawbacks and stuff like that so most people will be pretty genuine about it because they've made good money and they don't want to lose it's it. part of the deal yep. yeah yeah it's uh it's interesting you said um, something about the idea of the working to 100. And there are a lot of people that would roll over and go, oh, that sounds scary. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and and for some people that would be exactly what they want. Everyone listening to this will have yeah. a different relationship with work and, and running a business. Yeah. Where does – what's what's your fascination and where does this passion come from? Yeah. I, I enjoy what I do, right? And if I don't enjoy what I do, I'll do something different, right? And But it, to me, it's a work-related thing. Um, I, I believe that if you stop doing stuff that challenges you mentally, challenges your cognition, then it starts slowing down, right? And if you want to stay active, healthy, fit, and alert, right, you don't want to get Alzheimer's or dementia and stuff like that, you've got to use your mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm so help ends on this. I've, I carry two computers, an Apple and a Windows PC. Try and switch from that every half day, right? And it is impossible. Like, and it challenges you and it pisses me off to the nth degree. But my mind is working so hard to kind of work out the control keys here, the old keys here. I've got to do this. Yeah, you know, four fingers this way, four fingers that way. So and the other on, one. Why, but why do you do this? Because it challenges your mind, right? And so that's just the little things you do that challenge you to kind of think differently mm-hmm. will kind of keep your mind elastic, right? That's the way I see it. Um, and I'm not sure this is medically proven, but there is medical proof to say that if you you, know, you stretch your, your cognition, then it will last for longer. 
So if you stop working at the age of 50, 55, 60, 65, whatever you stop, right, you're probably going to start slowing down and you're winding down for your inevitable, you know, your inevitable death at some point in time, right? So long you do it, long you're probably going to live, right, and be active. And for me, it doesn't matter what the number is, it's being active until you can't anymore, right? I don't want to have a decline because I, I feel that's going to be boring. Um, so there's a boredom in it, there's a fulfillment in it as well. Fulfillment as well, yeah, definitely. Um, like I don't need, I probably won't need to work till I'm 100. I'm not going to work till I'm 100, but I, I met a doctor the other day. Here's a good example in Melbourne. He's 91 or he's 92 and he tr- consults five days a week. Still, he's a longevity doctor, so he's right. great yeah. for his own brand. But, I mean, maybe I won't work at 91 five days a week but you know but you want to do something so yeah yeah so so you're uh, is there a because it's interesting i i can understand you know we'll talk about biohacking in a minute but yeah i can understand people challenging yourself having an ice bath or mm-hmm. i can understand uh the idea of pushing yourself to do an, an athletic pursuit yeah but in business often what i see is people finding efficiency they seek efficiency and you just literally introduced the, the least efficient approach to managing your time, which would be jumping between two different laptops, let alone tasks, yeah. and intentionally doing it. It's probably, it's actually probably the the antithesis of what everyone talks about. So somebody says, like, turn off devices, don't stimulate your mind with the red screens and all that sort of thing, but I mean, do it during the day and stuff like that. But I mean, someone else I, I talked to um, recently talks about switching between the, the reads a lot, Kindles and paperback, like yep. it's the same sort of thing. It's just, the subtle things that train mm. that, that make you think differently because mm-hmm. um, you're doing different tasks the same way. Um, I don't know if I could switch between an iPhone and an Android, though. I think that would be yeah, impossible. Next level. No, that's, good. That's, that's next level. That's for serious biohackers, right? <laughs> so how, how, does this, how does this rub off on your people? What, what do you notice? Do they kind of go, oh, Tristan's just, that's him? Or is or are you noticing this uh, sort of Not every, through your culture? Everyone wants to do something. So... I start every day in the morning with a stand-up with my team and I kind of look at myself sometimes and go, shit, I must be so annoying because I'm like i on from the start of the day. Like I jump in an ice bath and from 7.30 in the morning when I start, like I get in the car and I'm on the phone and stuff, I'm, I'm on, right? And my aim is to be, I'd rather be focused for eight hours a day than work 11 hours, you know, lazy sort of thing. And that's what I do. Um, and that even works around when I work out and all the different things. So I don't want to slump. I remember being in my 30s and like going into meetings and you, you know you go in those corporate meetings and someone's falling asleep in the middle of the meeting and dozing <laughs> off and yeah. you're like you're struggling and <laughs> everyone's had those moments and yeah. I'm like why it's three in the afternoon like you know maybe after I have my, my kids like if I'm up all night maybe I find a little bit tired but no you shouldn't you should be on right and make the most of your time and then you've got more of it um and that's what I try and train into the team. So while I think I'm annoying, like our daily stand-up is sometimes we don't talk anything about work. It's just so energetic. It's kind of like a, I call it like the warm-up for the day. Yeah. Like it's the exercise. Like we all kind of, everyone does star jumps, but we don't do star jumps. Actually, we have done star jumps once. A <laughs> <laughs> lie, but yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really good start point. And if you start that way, your entire day just flies and it's just so much more effective. So that's how it rubs off. Um, People think I'm crazy with some of the things I do, but you know, I reckon I meet every day. Well, every day, my immediate team is four people, and we meet up in the morning. And I would say half of them are doing some of this stuff now, right? Because it's easy. Like even someone said to me yesterday, I went out for dinner with someone, and she said to me, um, "She goes, yeah, it's brushing off on me a little bit. Um, I'm having cold showers for three minutes every day. Just little things like that. Like 
you don't have to go and you know, put 100 million stem cells in your body, but you can have a green powder in the morning in your water that's going to you know, have all the different vitamins, nutrition, nutritional elements that you need for your body that's going to make you feel better. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, you're right, they're easy. I mean, I do my athletic greens every morning. Yeah, I do yeah, all yeah. this stuff. We won't go into me and you just yet, but the, the – <laughs> uh, that is, you know, there's one of the things that I, I think is so curious for a lot of the listeners to this podcast is, you know, leading people, right? Yeah. And um, there's this balance between, you know, uh, allowing someone to build, be their individual best yeah. and and creating an environment or structure yeah. that you can run, right? And there's, there's, there's the Tristan way of running the team. What are markers, like you've given a few examples there, the yeah. huddle, what are, what are markers that um, represent your style of leadership and, yeah. and management? Yeah, I hated when people would say, teach people to fish, don't catch the fish for them effectively, right? Because I lead by example and um, and I'm happy to roll my sleeves up and I feel I'm, I'm the type of person who's never had an office, I've never closed the door on anyone, I've always been involved in things. If you know, the early days of our tech businesses, if someone's having a problem with code, I would help them, right? Like get involved. And that's how I wanted to be very, you know, very involved. Everyone has a role to play. And everyone has a skill set that's important. And I think you got to bring that. It doesn't matter what level you are. So one of my main business partners, he's brilliant at all the technical stuff. If there's a problem on the project, it doesn't matter that he's you know, kind of running the Australian business or whatever he's doing. He'll go in and he'll help them code, right? So it's leading by example. And I think that's important. So even with all this sort of stuff, leading with energy in the morning, all that, you know, being positive, you know, that will, if you do it, everyone else will do it. So that's my leadership style. Um, very, very collaborative. And I'm very encouraging for people to bring themselves to work, the whole self to work. Because if you bring your whole self to work, you enjoy work, people understand you, and they're not like everyone's got something that no one knows about them. I want everyone to know everything about everyone as long as they're comfortable with it. So I try and create that environment where they are comfortable. So I'll talk about myself and, you know, I'm, I bring everything to work and maybe, you know, my wife and kids aren't happy about me talking about that. But, yeah, to the personal level, it's, it's important. I think, it, yeah, people feel comfortable. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So you role model that. Um, clearly evolved. Well, you, 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 I can tell you're a person that trusts in who you are. Yeah. Uh, what happens when you know someone not bringing, like, have you ever had a situation or maybe a story where you're like, that's, you're not bringing everything. I, I can yeah. see you're not authentic. Maybe you, there's something changing yeah. here. What do you do when you notice that? Yeah, it, it's a clash of personalities and typically those personalities don't survive, right? So not every, this is not for everyone's environment, right? It, everyone's got a different, way of working in different environments and yeah, you know, different cultures feed different things. I've had many people come through who think, oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> like we run a talent show. We call it Ark's Got Talent, right? People come into work and they're comfortable to sing and dance and stuff in front of everyone. That is amazing. Like <laughs> I still won't do karaoke in front of people because I'm shit at it, right? But <laughs> it's funny to watch it. Man. <laughs> but it'd be hilarious <laughs> after a few drinks, maybe. Yeah. Um but but those people that come with that different personality and it, it's a clash, they just don't, you just, they just, you can tell they just, they don't trust you because it's not innate to them. They they don't respect it and stuff and it just, it never works, right? And it just becomes a bit yeah, standoffish and they, they tend to leave, to yeah. be honest. Well, they say a good, a good culture, you can measure it by how strong or weak it is or yep. equally by how appropriate it is. Yeah. Right? For you, that's appropriate. Yep. It's, it's best to opt out and they can feel it pretty quickly, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, mm. definitely. And we've, we've seen that happen quite a few times. Yeah. So it, it begs the question of the the nature of the industry you're working. So you're yeah. an enterprise level 
technology projects and platforms and solutions that your business builds. Mm -hmm. And I imagine your culture is quite different to some of the clients that you would work with. Yeah. Could you paint could you paint a bit of that picture? Because I think that's a really interesting yeah. part of creating a culture like yours to yeah. engage with, and I won't name any companies, but very big, large, complex corporates yeah. that have um, a, a very different uh, relationship with their culture. Yeah, so it took me a while to to really have the confidence to bring our own culture in, right? And when I say that, I wear a T-shirt and jeans to work every day, right? Wind back 10 years, right? I was in a suit, you know, and I was debating to you wear a tie or not, right? And while that's really important from a cultural perspective is I work with the big banks, right? Walk into a big bank and find me an executive who's wearing jeans and a T-shirt. Doesn't, Doesn't happen, happen, right? Yeah. And most of the time, probably a tie. And it's just different environments, but it's the confidence to do that. But it's because of the product we deliver, right? Like we deliver a technical product, so we're techies, right? And it doesn't matter if we're doing it at the enterprise scale or at the consumer scale, right? We're the same type of people. And if I'm going to get the best people, we've got to have the people, yeah, we've got to be who we are, right? And I am a T-shirt person, right? I'm not a suit person. <laughs> and a great example of that is when we bought the business back the first time, um, I remember going in and uh, this guy's still with us and we had a stand up and we said to him, you know, we're going to make some changes here. We're going to have T-shirt Tuesday. Everyone's going to wear a T-shirt. And he looked at me and he said, why just Tuesdays? Right? And that has stuck good, with me good question. forever, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I'm a bit of a smart ass. So for the next two weeks, I wore a T-shirt every day except for Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know, Tuesday's my suit day, right? Um, and then... Three months later, I'm in New Zealand and I'm meeting with Westpac New Zealand. And I remember going there and it was the first time we go to New Zealand. And I went and I met up with their CTO at the time. And we had a quite a good relationship. And we'd, but we'd only ever met on Zoom. And I'd always been at home and I don't because of COVID and I'd always been in a T-shirt. And I turned up in the lobby and I'm wearing a suit. And um, he walked past me three times. And then when he saw me, and he was in his suit, and he saw me and he said to me afterwards, oh, shit, I actually didn't recognize you. I've never seen you in a suit before. <laughs> it was that point in time when I realized I've, I own it, right? I own it now, that the fact that I can wear a T-shirt, and that's it. That's kind of, that was, there was no turning back. Like, I've closed that suit cupboard, except for when I go to certain events or <laughs> private, public, you know. A wedding or wedding something or like that, a, yeah, yeah. Exactly, but yeah. So, yeah. so owning that, because there's a cultural shift that I've noticed as well, like that, that yeah. relationship with corporates are getting more comfortable that people like you yeah. exist and that fundamentally you're ridiculously capable, your team are very capable, yeah. and they're not buying you because of what you wear. Yeah. Um, but that takes a while for us to get comfortable it does, with. Yeah. When you look at you know, either a client pitch or going through a purchase process or engaging in the early days, how much does um, do you try and understand who you need to be for that client? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I, it's it's who you need to be, I think, is the important thing. Oh, sorry, it's who you are, not just who you need to be, right? Yeah, so you don't, yeah. don't try and be someone you're not, right? Yeah. And we're not the big consulting. Well, we are a big consulting firm, but we're not a big international global firm. And everyone looks a bit different. So we that's the way that we do it. But it's even the way that we approach things. Like while we wear T-shirts and jeans and stuff like that, the technology we use in the back end is very techy, 
right? So we're not using our own custom-built way of managing software. We're using you know, Atlassian products. We're using yeah you know, all these different bits and pieces that are really, really technical mm-hmm. and the way that we approach it. That we're the first to take on, one of the first to really adopt Agile. Everyone said, oh, we're doing Agile. You go into a bank and say, we're going to give you Agile. In fact, with this customer in New Zealand, like, yeah, yeah, we can do Agile right within the bank and then you've got all the governance and everything else that goes with it. Like, they can't do sprints, right? We train them to do it because that is the way that we work and that's the way you're going to get the best results with us. So you've got to, so it goes beyond just your look. It's it's the way that you approach things. And when they realize that, they go, shit, we're dealing with some techie people now, right? Mm-hmm. And these these guys, like, you know, we need fewer people to deliver the same task as some other firms because of the way that we do it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make us cheaper or more expensive. just means it's the way that we do it. And you're probably going to get the same outcome with us as someone else. Like, you want to build a mobile app, everyone's going to get there eventually, right? But why would you build with us versus someone else? Because, you know, maybe we're the experts on accessibility and design and usability, where someone else might be the experts on global rollout and, you know, cost and stuff like that. You've got to choose what's important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like buying, buying and building a house, right? You can go with a home builder, you can go with an architect, right? And what do you want? And mm-hmm. there's no one solution for everyone. So we just got to find that place and just know that we're not everything to everyone. Yeah. We are, this is us and it's mm-hmm. what we do. Mm-hmm. So what, if you were to create a, provide, use that analogy, where would, who would you be if you were a builder or uh, in the building game? What do you look like and feel like as a consultant? Definitely to build it, it's still in business. That's yeah, the first that's thing. The first that's right. <laughs> um, we would be, we'd be a bespoke builder for sure. Um, we would, we're, we're not building a generic solution for everyone because we don't, like the way the solutions we build are, you know, are very much custom to what someone needs, um, and and that's important. Um, so that's that's us first. Yeah. So you shared before with me before this discussion that you're making tomorrow today or something along yep. those lines as a, a mindset and yep. approach that your culture brings and your business brings to your clients. And something we talked about was this idea that. The, I, what's in your head and what yeah. you believe is potentially you know, achievable yeah. is something that some of your clients may not fully understand. Yeah. When we talk about generative AI, yeah. you know, I, I did a um, workshop with uh, 30 CFOs about two months ago and we talked mm-hmm. about looking at AI and literally everyone says, I know it exists. Yeah. Great. Do I understand it? Like, no, no, I don't understand. I understand potentially components of what I've read in the in the media, but I don't really know what its potential is. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know the value proposition it's most likely to add the most value towards. I, I'm, just, I'm just deep in that water, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do you, how do you take them on the journey? Yeah, so make tomorrow, this is a little brainchild of ours. It's just, we love it. It's, it's about thinking about the future. And we started this when they first bought us August last year, um, where we did this big immersive experiences conference in Melbourne. We took over the Loom, um, the digital art gallery. We took down their Van Goghs and put up our own stuff. But we gave people the opportunity to get into immersive experiences and stuff. What we wanted to show people is you got to think about technology two years, three years ahead. Now, we don't know what those technologies will be because they keep coming out. But what are the advancements and the things that we want to achieve differently? So take the business results. So make tomorrow is about being very business focused. So we might say we want to make tomorrow more secure. So we've got to make sure that how do we uh, shape our business to be more cyber resilient? How do we make it more, you know, more corporate enhancing and all that sort of stuff? So we, we look at all those different elements. So make tomorrow is about looking ahead. Um, 
Then we get to generative AI, right? So generative AI is an example of the fastest adopted technology we've seen so far, right? And it came in, what, September last year, October. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's still talking about it. But AI has been around for decades, right? And the second that that came out, we already had our large language models. We've been doing it for a while. So we we start putting it into the make tomorrow and we go to the, like go into a bank and we say, well, you know, they're like, how do we use this? And we're like, well, what's your number one issue? So we're talking about making it more secure, for example, and it's around governance and making sure that your advisors are giving people the right information. So we get generative AI and we say, well, we can assess every conversation that every single one of your advisors is having on a call and give them a, a scorecard at the end of it. It's like listening into the calls, you know, this call might be monitored, right? <laughs> We're monitoring them, but generative AI is monitoring them and coming back and saying, here's your scorecard. You said this right, this right, this right, and this is wrong, right? And that's going to cause us a governance issue, right? So you need to train on this. We've been building, like that was the first thing we built. So we've been building stuff like that. We did medical advice off it, stuff like that. So things that you can do, generative AI made it quicker and easier to do through the AI portals but um, and, and language models, but that's the sort of the area. So we're, Make Tomorrow for us is really about that. We're thinking automation, robotics, all that sort of stuff. And when you take a client, a large organization on that journey of yep. adoption and, and is it a you know, is it similar to an entrepreneur's mindset around an MVP? Is it, let's get something in, let's test it, let's explore this, let's know if it's a good fit for you at scale. Yeah. Is that, is that where, how it plays out? It's effectively it. So it's an ideation to some extent to an MVP. So we start trying to get to three different ideas and then try and hopefully we get one through the PIC process. So we go through that end to end. And you asked before about how integrating into NCS is working. Well, they were smart enough to turn around and go, we've got an entrepreneur in the business who's bloody good at what he does. Let's get him to be the entrepreneur for all of our customers. Mm-hmm. And that's, we call it global innovation. That's part of my remit. And my team is like the best innovators, best entrepreneurs that I've got. Mm-hmm. And they're working with companies to train them how to think differently. Yeah. Do you find the these companies, you know, I often see this when I'm having conversations with larger end of town contacts is yep. that they're seeking to be more, more entrepreneurial anyway. They already want that. It's just, we're like the Titanic, you know, we're trying to turn and become this and it takes time. Is that what they, that, are they looking at from, you know, your injection? Is that sort of almost being requested? Uh, it's never, re- well, it depends on where, right? Yeah. So I look at Australia and Singapore. In Australia, yes, requested. Singapore, no, right? Like it's so different. Like it's a, a lot of businesses are government run or ownerships and stuff and they're very structured. So they're like, we can tell you what we're doing in three years' time. I'm like, great. If you tell me what you're doing in three years' time, two years ago, was generative AI in it? No, right? So they can't. So we've got to train them to think differently. So so we got to take them on that journey. So it's a structure and a framework that makes that happen. Um, and so they're not asking for that. And where our salespeople, particularly in Singapore, they're not, they're not wanting to take it. It's quite uncomfortable for them to go to their client and say, Hey, I've got your five year vision and roadmap, but here's three things that you hadn't thought of. You know, that's pretty confronting. Like in Australia, it's like, Oh, that's awesome. They love it. Thank right? you. Yeah. So different cultures. So we have to customize it for each one. So they're not asking for it. They're not asking for entrepreneurs, but that's got to be our brand. It's back to the black t-shirts and the, you know, the jeans and stuff like that. That's our brand. We're thinking differently. And that's what Make Tomorrow is about for us. It's kind of like eventually we'll get a brand for being the people that they think about that kind of can come in and teach them to do that. 
But that's really good. It's kind of it's in our our way of it's in our kind of our mantra of wanting to make impactful change, right? Like we get, we can do that by taking people on that journey. Well, what's the most symbolic example of that change for you? Like, what's a practical example you've seen it play out? You go, geez, that project. I'm really proud of that. Our team. Yeah. really has made a huge impact not only on that particular result but just more broadly on what that organization can now do yeah we've we said that a bit automation is a big one for us in that space because we'll have a lot of people that will say we want to build this application and a good example there's so many automation tools uipath blue prism um you know power automate with microsoft there's all these different things and everyone's kind of goes through and i remember going through a um a distribution center for uh, you know i think it was australia post or one of the um the dispatch companies and, and it was like it was australia post but anyway they had all this stuff and there was a person that sat there and they punched in the postcode right it's like the worst job you could possibly have right and they all rotated through it because no one wanted to do it and it was like so it's when parcels go on a conveyor belt they're the ones that can't go through the automation process. There's a bunch of them and they have to go, okay, well, here's the one, 3145, 2176, and they just type it in. It's this little punch cat, uh, code. And um, and we thought about, well, surely you could do something different to automate that. That always stuck in my mind. So everything I look at is robotic process automation from now on. It's like, what are the tasks that people don't want to do? So the most impactful things have been, you know, particularly with banks and telcos and stuff, when they come to us and they're like, okay, well, we need to, we need to build this system to do this better. I'm like, no, we don't. We actually just need to automate that, throw it to the side and work on something else. So mm-hmm. we're seeing that. So, yeah, the big examples are, you know, that a lot of it happens, things like metaverse and AI again and stuff like that, where people start on a path of we need a solution to do this. And we're like, well, actually, no, we can actually do that automatically for you mm-hmm. in this space. And, mm-hmm. and we go through that path. Yeah, so we don't have to overkill the, the solution. Exactly. We can just go simple, go easy, yeah. get the robot to do and, it. And challenging the solution. So particularly, you know, with big, corporate customers they come and they go here's a here's a tender can you respond to this and we go yes we can but have you thought about it this way mm. most of the time organizations go no that means you're non-compliant we won't win the work and we're like well yeah <laughs> we're not compliant but this is how we would deliver it right mm. and it's better for you i've seen that a lot and, and yeah. this idea of tendering and i think a lot of our client a lot of listeners who are SMEs or entrepreneurs that are working with corporates have go get yep. forced to go through this process sometimes, yep. and it's unhealthy for the the, the client in the yep. end. Yep. Um, when you're challenging that and trying to break that down, say, "Hey, look, you can take me through the tender, but let's let's really assess the problem properly." Yeah, you know what? I'm sure there's a range of responses. Um, when where where is it about the client where there's a good fit when they actually yeah. start to listen to you and you listen to them like where does it work best the issue is in what you just said before take you through the problem because we always see it as an opportunity right mm-hmm. so when mm-hmm. someone has a problem that you need to solve everyone can solve it right it's too late when we look at an opportunity it's to change your business that's all we so we change that mindset good. some customers don't look at it that way like a customer who comes to us and says we need to do it cheaper right probably not our business right there is there's there's drivers there's cost there's quality and there's time right and yeah if you want something that's really cheap then you get what you get your your home builder's house it's off a package and that's what you get and then you make the business process work whereas we make a system that works to your business process Mm. that's the difference so it integrates in yeah Yeah, exactly and there's no right or wrong in that yeah just fit for purpose what's right for the scenario and so your team really need to understand that exactly in the first place yeah when you look at developing your sales staff i mean that's good for you you can probably wrestle with that idea consistently yeah. but if you if you if you've got sales people out there engaging and exploring this yeah. um where do they find that challenging or where 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 do 
if you're developing a salesperson, what do you look at asking them and helping and getting them to think about? Yeah, sales. It's a, it's a challenge in my career, to be honest. There's always been salespeople, right? Because yeah, you know, a good salesperson will get the job because they can tell you the right things at the right time, <laughs> and then you work it out from there. And then, but training a salesperson to do something differently can be really hard. I found the most success has been in people that aren't in sales; they've been consultants because they they're not overly selling and you can train them to kind of think that way and you can train them how to do things whereas you've got genuine salespeople who come in and could you know we had a uh, you know, i've seen people come through that have been selling gym memberships one day and then the next day they're selling tech services like doesn't work but i've also had people that are in the medical sales industry come in and be some of our best people um it's that consultative approach right it's to really think about it not uh, in the world of sales but to think about it in the world of solution Right. So what are we trying to build rather than, yeah, what, what what's the problem we're trying to solve? So we train our salespeople to be problem well, either we're problem now, but problem solvers or opportunity or make tomorrow. So a lot of the time, like one of my partners in this is spends most of his time training, we call them tribes and sales teams basically, um, on how to make tomorrow. Right. So it takes them to a framework of doing stuff and how to think and then how to present. So it's and that making tomorrow idea sounds like it's reverse engineering the yeah. outcome. So it's yeah. like introduce the outcome, yeah. dive into the outcome, and build back from there and take the client on that journey yeah. of going from the outcome they want. And that's opposed to doing you know sales methodologies, right? Like there's so many sales methodologies that tell you how to get a statement of work while you're in the meeting. That's awesome, right? But what are you getting it for? <laughs> right? <laughs> you can start at first principles, right? Exactly. Like I would rather send a non-salesperson in who could sit down and talk to them about what they need. And it takes a week or two or three or even longer to get there than a salesperson will because they and they break every rule of 101 of sales. Like they haven't got the statement of work, they haven't got commitment, they haven't got action, but they've got a bloody good outcome that they're going to achieve. And probably a good relationship. Yeah, and a great relationship. Yep. Mm, okay, interesting. So I changed gears off the business just yep. for a little bit. But, yep. You know, we we started with you. We landed in the business. We are talking mm -hmm. a, bit, a bit about your, your response to culture and building a business and client relationships. And we we alluded to biohacking, so I want to look at your relationship with that because this yep. this um, you know I've been on your LinkedIn. You're actually super passionate about it. You share it. You talk about it. I saw you with a needle in your drip, drip in your arm. You know uh, yep. what's what's the fascination first? Let's start there. Yeah, uh, I've always been about even back to the triathlon days. I've always been about high performance, right? So I want to be performing at all times at the same level, right? Um, I think as you approach 40, you kind of start questioning your uh, you know, your life and like your performance and you know, your mortality to some extent as well. Like where are you going to go and am I into the second half of your life? So the fascination probably is like my wife calls it the midlife crisis and I'm like, well, it's no longer midlife because we're going to live for longer, right? <laughs> this is awesome. First third still. Yeah, yeah first third. <laughs> oh, maybe a quarter. Who knows? But, uh, but yeah, I look at it from that perspective and then I think, yeah, you kind of just being sensible about things. So the analytical side of me kind of looked at and triggered by performance and, you know, how, how well are you going to live and watching people around you, like your parents get older and they start struggling with walking and this and that and all these sorts of things. You think, I don't want that to happen to me. Right. So that kind of triggers it. That's a fascination. Mm -hmm. And that, I don't want that to happen to me. Where are you at around reality versus the process of biohacking? Yeah. So the reality is like at any point, at any time, something can happen to you. Right. Um, they're the uncontrollables, right? 
but there are controllables and with the controllables if you don't control them then you're just you everything's by chance exactly everything's by chance so so if you control certain things and i looked into it there's certain things where you know yeah you hear all the famous biohackers that had something like someone was diabetic someone had a heart attack someone had this and that yeah so they're good trigger points you can learn from that that's kind of your business learning from your mistakes to some extent yes yeah. uh, but then something can always happen at, at any point in time so so i'm yeah i recognize that you can't control the uncontrollables but the stuff that you can control why not mm, so I, I reckon there's some listeners here that want to hear about those controllables yep so give us your top five uh so mind body exercise and i guess supplements to some extent so you've got to be number one you've always like right right mindset that's number one right like if you're not in the right mindset it doesn't matter what you do with everything else right you could be the healthiest person who's living a complete life of you know with mental health issues and it's not going to be healthy for you right so you gotta start with number one right and nutrition and exercise, those three coupled together before you get into anything extreme, right? So care about what you eat. Um, I was reading this great book. It's all about processed food. And we don't realize how much is in the processed food and why it's important, right? You eat processed food, you're probably not going to live as long as somebody doesn't, right? It's easy to eat and you probably don't recognize it, but how hard is it to get the non-processed version of a processed food? Right? Yeah, it can be slightly more expensive sometimes, but it might not be as well. Just knowing what goes into your body, eating, you know, if you've got high blood sugars, why eat white carbohydrates when you can eat other carbohydrates, which are going to have a lower glycemic index. So there's simple things. Having a green powder like Athletics Green or I use Vital All-in-One every day gives you the nutrition that you need. Um, sleep, I didn't mention as well. Like most people forget about that. It's like people think they're superhuman because they can operate off four hours sleep a day. Well, yeah, that's four hours less you're going to probably live, right? Because you need that sleep. Your body needs to recharge and really understanding it. Um, and exercise is critical. And exercise to me in the past was I got to run extremely fast for an extreme long time, right? It's not. It's mm -hmm. like if I just have 20 minutes a day of lifting weights, it's knowing what your body needs, right? Mm -hmm. So as you get older, your muscles deteriorate. So you need to put on more muscle to make sure that you're strong enough. Like I had, a, I had someone, it's funny, a, a guy years ago who works for us, he turned around and said, he met this guy and we ended up buying their business. It was a data science business. And I said, how did you meet him? I go in the gym and I go, but I looked at the two guys. I'm like, you're not the type of people I would expect to see in the gym. He goes, yeah, I want to make sure I can stand up off the toilet when I'm 60. I'm like, okay, makes sense. And I said, read more into that and he's like well it's about muscles right and so it's not extreme stuff right and then you get to the next level the supplementation and stuff like that and yeah they're real like putting you know supplements into your body and stuff like that but there's some simple stuff like i love ice baths every day that's kind of my trigger point for mood for immunity for for muscle muscular for everything like that it also starts my day for me it's like the you know the cold plunge into to the morning there's a lot in that. There's heaps in it. You know, there's people that are listening to this also listen to the Hubermans and all of those sorts of yeah. things. Yeah, you, know, you kind of know what they're like. But when you, there's a couple of things going through my mind. When I hear this, there's two questions that come up. Like, what triggered it in the first place? Right? Because yeah. like there was a there's a point in time where yeah. even for me, you know, ice baths. Been doing it for years now, but the there's a, there was a point where I didn't. Yep. Um. So was it just awareness, or, or was, there, was there someone that took you along to have a go at some of these things, or how, how did it? How did you get on that journey? Yes, I've got I've got a good mate or a couple of mates who do this, so that that helps, right? And one's probably ahead of me on all this sort of stuff, so I kind of follow, but I'm more analytical, so it's a bit different. Yeah. Um, fascination 
yeah. so technology side of me, like pulling something apart to understand what's in it. So fascination, like it's cool. It's being able to do stuff that others can't. Like getting in an ice bath, it's funny. I did cryotherapy for many years and I thought that was really hard. I was scared to get in an ice bath, right? One's negative 140, one's four or maybe six or whatever you go in. It depends on the day. And I was scared to get into it because I just thought it was going to be a lot harder. But I've been doing cryotherapy for three or four years before I even did my first ice bath. Um, but the fascination with cryotherapy, but then knowing I could do it, and I remember someone saying to me once, do you actually do it because it gives you a benefit or just because you get to a negative 140 and you, it's just it's your personality, like I can do you it like and you walk win. out. Yeah. <laughs> and you feel good because it's been frozen or you feel good because you've just done it. Um, and there's different benefits to that in ice bars. But that was kind of the fascination. People, like, yeah, I did listen to the Hubermans and the Atiers and yeah, Sinclairs and all that to kind of get into that. But to trigger that off, it's probably friends doing it triggered the fascination the fascination then triggered me to kind of get started mm. and are those friends are they more of the experimental type or are they the analytic the analytical as well uh a bit of both so i've got a i've got a friend who's probably a little bit more experimental um but has now got more into the analytical side of it too because you have to right once you get to that extreme level you're not going to you know, kind of put stuff in without well it's like you know, someone who decides to play around a golf yeah and then they decide to Take it seriously. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got the clubs. You got the lessons. Yeah, exactly. So you're on that journey. So, yeah. so you're now at like there's 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 ice bath, there's nutrition, there's, yeah. there's mental. You're now at stem cells. Yeah. How's how does like I'm not there yet. How does this work? So I, I should actually say that most people when they get to know me better, they go oh, stem cells. That's extreme. And I'll sit down and have lunch with them, and they go. Shit, stem cells is nothing. <laughs> I crack open my can of sardines, my avocado, my spinach, and they're like, you eat sardines? And I'm like, absolutely. They are, they're so good for your body. Like it's like I'm on a high Mediterranean, uh, sorry, a Mediterranean high omega-3, low inflammation diet. That's what I do. Now, I'm not Brian Johnson who eats the same food all the time, right? I'll eat normal food too, but just little things like that. So stem cells I got into because um, – because it's regenerative of your body. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never needed it for a, a particular injury. So a lot of people get into it first time because they have a shoulder and knee or whatever and they take their own stems or plasma and they put it back PRP into their body. Mm -hmm. Hair replacement's another one people use it for. Um, I used it because I read about – well, I did a test firstly, which from my analytical side shows how fast you use your stems and that's a measurement of your age to some extent. I use them pretty quickly. And it's probably normal because I'm pretty active. Um, and you know, it's in a normal range, but I thought, well, if you slow that down, not using them up, but if you can put better ones in, it's better. So I'm putting ones in that are not going to mutate in my body. I'm not going to become someone else. I'm, my son jokes about it. Can you get LeBron James the stems and become a really good basketballer? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, for sure. I can do that. But it's more the regeneration because you, you have a finite number of them and the longer mm -hmm. they last, the better. So I did that, but I look at all different things as well. Like you've, you know, there's there's other supplements and stuff that I've looked into. I've looked into, you know, there's gene therapy now you can look into. You can put proteins in your body that turn certain genes on or off and you can do it at a small scale, like you do it at an extreme scale. So there's different things, but stems are relatively safe and easy and just can't do it in Australia, unfortunately, with mm -hmm. someone else's. You can do it with your own and only localized. Okay, interesting. So you've had to travel for it. You just got back from the States. Yep. Walk us through what it, the experience looks like to, to, to go through it, how it feels, how it looks. I, I think yeah. it's it's really fascinating. So I'll start with the beginning because people are like, well, you know, you just walk into a clinic. You actually can in the US. You can just walk into a clinic and go, I want some stems. You get a very small amount from a nurse. Um, 
go for a medical consult before I go over there, meet with a doctor, talk about what my objective is. Um, am I trying to heal something? Am I doing it for longevity? Um, and then you go through. So you go through that consult, then you go in there and um, they have a prescript a prescription for the amount they're going to give you. So I started the first time this year with about $6 million, um, and then I've done $100 million. It's I should say it's hard to measure the quantity of them because it's about the quality of them that's more important. And in the States, I do it because of the efficacy of them. So I know I am getting ones that are fully medically tested scientifically through effectively pharmaceutical or compound pharmacists that are going through and putting them together. And they have to be the highest quality before they'll inject them in your body. Um, some other places you can get them and it's just different standards. Like it's not that they're worse or better, but if you're taking stems and someone's got like a disease or a virus or something in them, you don't want them in your body because while they don't bind to your body, they potentially can if they're if they're harmful, um, and so so you go through that. Then you go into a clinic and you do you don't just put the stems in. You got to put some other stuff in to activate them as well. So I do an NAD, which you can do in Australia. Um, I won't even try and pronounce what that is, but it's it's basically the first level of generating cells, and it's really good for them. Like feed some and oxygenate some, etc. And then you do. You put stems in with a thing called exosomes. Exosomes activate everything in your body. So you do that. Um, in the US, this time for 100 million, it was about a two-hour procedure um, administered by a doctor, intravenous, um, and it slowly puts them in. And you know, some you know, as as you go further, they put more and more in quicker. Um, and then you're you're done. And then you're you're belting up and down the streets. Very excited. It's the exosomes that make you feel really, really. Yeah, you know, hyped and energetic. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, then I go and I do oxygen therapy afterwards because that always helps your body absorb everything. And typically red light therapy, which is like, um, what's the best way to explain? It's like a tanning bed. It's like a solarium. It's not really, but it's infrared sauna. Yeah, I, I prefer that to the infrared sauna. I've got an infrared sauna that I use, but I use that for different things for healing. A red light uh, bed, which is about 30 minutes lying on it. It's not hard. It's just, yeah, you line it. just gets to every cell in your body a lot better. Um, so I'll do that afterwards and then and then I'll typically have a good meal of sardines and mackerel and all the good foods for you. Day in the life of, yeah. of Tristan. Uh, it's a bit of fun. <laughs> I always have this question for people like yourself and, and I often ask it to myself as well because I know I've got to be feeling my best or as, as good as I can to be yeah. functioning well. And I do take that seriously. But the other question that goes to mind is, well, what's the difference between good and great? Mm -hmm. What's the good between good and bad when I know I can only compare myself to yesterday? Mm -hmm. um, how do you how do you start to deal with that in your mind when you think about how well you're going considering you're always yeah. pushing the limits? So I, I track my bloods constantly, quarterly testing, sometimes more. I've done MRIs. I've done all the head-to-toe testing that you can possibly do. So you can see your physical analytical performance of how your body is going and it doesn't always go as well as you think it is like i've had a great diet i've done this and this and then one of your vdl or one of your cholesterol markers is out and you go oh shit okay so everyone like no matter how hard you work certain things you need to fix right um I, so analytically i test it um problem with that is not you know like track my sleep with a sleep monitor and you know, i'm about to get a constant glucose monitor and all that sort of stuff and blood pressure caps cuffs and all that sort of stuff so you can measure all that that's good the problem is that sometimes psychologically, if you have a marker, it can kind of bring you down as well, mm. right? So you can't measure your mental health. You can't measure how your body feels. You can measure how it 
scientifically or you know, biologically. It's like the lag together. indicator is, is there, but you don't, yeah, okay. So I can generally, like I can feel it. Like it's typically just how my body feels. Am I getting a sore neck? Am I getting a sore back? Am I getting, you know, am I feeling a bit lethargic at points in the day? So you, you've got that level of it, which is kind of a little bit more subjective than objective, and you've just got to measure through that too. So kind of that's how I feel. So for me, if I can spring out of bed in the morning, that's stage one, right? And if I can go through the entire day without a lull and get to the end of the day relaxed and have a really great day, that's the ultimate. That's that's peak performance. There's no metric that measures that, but it's all it's the just ingredients. Knowing, it's just knowing I was on yep. and I was working, I was feeling good, yep. and there wasn't a little blip there somewhere. Exactly. And then trying to break the tie between metrics and psychological because mm-hmm. if I wake up and my watch says, oh, you only had an hour and 56 minutes of deep REM sleep, I'm like, oh, shit, I'm going to have a flat day today. And my HRV is down. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm dying slowly. Like, so, do you, not, so, <laughs> so do you find you – I mean, that in itself, you know, because, you know, two people could look at that data and go, well, yeah. play on. Yeah. And, you, and that gets you down. No, so I, I now look at it as kind of I, I, it doesn't anymore. It used to at some stage. I'd like look at it and I feel awake, and then I look at it and go, "Well, what a bad sleep." Oh, now I'm really tired, right? <laughs> um, I look at it as the averages because typically, you know, it's like you recharge your phone every night, right? And if one night you accidentally recharge it to eighty percent, it's probably still going to last you the whole day anyway, and it's going to perform exactly the same. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Might run out a few minutes earlier. So yeah. do you, do you find now? And we'll go back to business for a little bit, yeah. but in this passion you've got i call it passion we'll call it whatever yeah. you like but you know i find that relationship building at you know the level you're at really important yeah um no doubt you've got customers clients different relationships you nurture yeah in the old days you know it was often have a beer have a glass of wine do you find that you're talking about this or is this part of your relationship now is it you giving them a, a bit of a taste of tristan yeah, everyone's fascinated, but it's it's a stage of where it is at the moment. Like longevity is such a big topic; it's mm. a new industry. Everyone's getting involved in it. It's kind of it's it's new, and people are. I mean, it might not just be new; it might just be the age group that I'm at as well, and the people that I'm you know, yeah socializing with. It, yeah, right? they're yeah. caring about it a bit more. Um, so yeah, it is a little bit about it, but you know, I'm my hope is that over time, like everyone's doing it. It just becomes we're comparing. It's like okay. Talk about a footy match on the weekend or a basketball game or something. It's like, oh, what did you do this week? Oh, I had athletic trend. I had five to one. Which one's better? How you many know? stem cells you hit this weekend? Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> 120 million. Jeez, <laughs> well, oh, you're good. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like a I hit scratch in my golf game, right? <laughs> yes, yes. It's a big day on the uh, at the uh, at the uh, at the game, yeah. mate. Um, change gears slightly, just in sort of round, winding out and rounding out today's yeah. conversation. I, one of the questions I like to ask people. In, in your field or generally in all of our guests is where you've changed your mind, right? And and reframe the way you've looked at a situation or things that come up in your life. And that's not, you know, where you've changed your mind and picked a different bus to catch to the the, yeah. the studio today. Talking about genuine um, kind of perspectives that have, are really new for you but have been rewarding or healthy for mm-hmm. you. Where where's that played out for you? Um, Look, if I go back to the art group, like, the where we so we our original business was called Info Ready and that was a data business. We sold it to Melbourne IT. Melbourne IT then got um, re, we rebranded it into an enterprise. They had two parts: they had the domain business, which was and web hosting, which was kind of a small medium business, and then they had the enterprise business, which we ended up calling Arc Group. When I took over in um, September 2019 as a CEO of the whole group. Um, my original plan was to hold on to the enterprise business like we did and try and sell the other part of the business, the SMB business. And I think there was a big path in that where we looked at the value of it 
and we knew what we could do better. But at the same time, I, I had to consider shareholders and what the best value was for them. So while selfishly, I knew that part of the business, the enterprise part, we'll hold on to that, we'll sell the other part. So we had to change our mind pretty quickly through the process of that to say, well, actually, we need to sell half the business to eradicate debt, number one. And number two, what was better for other people was not what was better for us necessarily. Like this was a great business and I just I just knew that was a part of the business we could grow the best. And we did in the end because we ended up buying it, but that, that was a different process. But um, at that point in time, it was kind of, what was better for other people and it's kind of thinking through all the different scenarios and yeah i had to really consider shareholders and that's actually been a big changing point in my life because up until that point in time i'd always thought of shareholders as yeah they're involved and they're a bit quiet whatever and they're yeah they're passively invested in businesses etc we were a public listed company and at some point in time you got to look at it and go you know you've got to do what's right for your shareholder right and I've actually talked a lot to the guys at Singtel about this too as well. It's kind of like when we talk to shareholders, it's like, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, you've got to tell them what they want to hear because otherwise they're going to pull their money. No, no, no. You've got to respect them as the owners of your business. Mm. And that was a big kind of point for us in that. Yeah, yeah. it is a, a big shift. Do, do you find, because I can I can empathize with that. Do, do you believe, because there's a very easy chance for them just to, you know, ignore or yeah. because they can't hear what's going through your mind. Yeah. Uh, do you have to? Do you feel that there's a process of education? Is there a process of alignment? You know, how how deep do you take that relationship with the shareholder? It's got to be a process of alignment, modern education. Because you tell a shareholder something, it's kind of like you, they're invested because I mean, it depends on what they are. If you're, yeah, a small zero point zero 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 something percent of a public listed company, it's probably not as important. But you typically have your big shareholders in there, and they're aligned to what you're trying to achieve. And they are your owners. They're fundamentally they're going to be involved in what you do. So they're either aligned or you know, they've got to have the decision not to be aligned and to remove, right, yeah. to, to sell to someone else. And that typically operates a lot better um, than if you kind of just kind of tell them, well, this is what we're doing. So a great example for us is we moved from being – Melbourne IT was one of the most stable businesses you could possibly have because we sold domain names. And you think about all your domain names that you probably got and everyone else has. How often do you change a domain name carrier? You probably don't even know who's carrying yeah, your domain it's, name. It's very sticky, isn't it? Yeah. It is. And then we went into an enterprise business where we sell a you know, anything from a 500000 to a $5 million project that lasts six to nine months and then we lose it, right? Like we did, we did a, an application that was over $15 million over nine months and that was awesome. And the shareholders are like, yeah, this is great. What happens at the end of the fifth? That fifth yeah, you got to find another one. So you've gone from a business that never churns to a business that always churns, right? And if we didn't, we didn't really respect that. We didn't take them on that journey because we didn't give them the chance to say that's our focus. You got to choose which way you want to go. Do you want to be part of this or not? And it's a different. I mean, the simplest part. It's a different risk appetite. Mm. Domain businesses, enterprise businesses, we're high risk, they're low risk. Yeah, and to have them together is a, it's a, it's just different knitting. And exactly right, the, the risk appetite, the, the shareholder will probably get confused to some degree. Hundred percent. I'd go. Well, what am I really? Where are you going with this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And why can't you perform like the other half of the business? Because mm. we don't sell twenty dollars domain names, right? Mm. Mm. And it's 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 also that one one's uh, reputation and one's way of running a business is you know fundamentally different cadence as well. Yeah. You know, how, yeah. And they they would they would not gel. I would imagine they wouldn't gel that well. Yeah. No. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, and finally, and I guess this is for for some of the key people in the audience, very much the entrepreneurs, the uh, those that are building something that's you know, that's theirs, their baby, they're creating it, they're making it their own. Um, what's a, you know just a advice or, or 
things that you'd reflect on now going back to critical challenges you've been through? What, what are some of the big moments we go, I learned a lot for that and I think other people would learn from that as well? I, yeah, I wouldn't change my journey in any way, right? And we talked about the blankets and Y2K and stuff like that because at every point, there's a learning opportunity. And so what most where most entrepreneurs fail is that they start a business, they fail, they start again, they fail again, they go, no, this isn't going to work, right? Small bets is a good way to start rather than you know, kind of bet your house on something up front. And as you learn, you get there. It's like any job. You've got to be trained in doing it. I remember a, uh, a boss of mine at a previous employer before I started InfoReady turned around and said, ah, oh, we'll see you back because nine out of 10 entrepreneurs fail. I'm like, great. I haven't seen him since. Um, but <laughs> but, um, but in that, it was kind of like, well, yeah, nine out of 10 might fail. But it's like the next time around, do they fail and then go again and go again and go again? And it's keeping keeping with what you try and do. And mm. to me, that's the most important thing. Don't be afraid to learn. Mm. Um, and yeah, everything I do now, it's kind of like you've got to do it. You've got to learn from something because no one knows how to do it the first time. Yeah, totally. So, some people have told me it's sort of, yeah, the third one's your best. But yeah. w- what's been your best? Uh, well, I haven't really counted them because I've had, I've had a few other ones I didn't even mention in there that were kind of a bit funny. I had a... I had a market research company that lasted about a week. You know, we, we had the coffee cup idea, you know, when you print on the coffee cups, that's now not sustainable. Yeah. Um, the best one, uh, definitely, well, my first one, but InfoReady is the one I'm most passionate and Arc Group obviously kind of fell onto that. But InfoReady for me was the one where, you know, we started literally from, you know, the study in my house and, you know, and, and worked its way up into Melbourne IT. And while it probably wasn't the most financially rewarding of, of the ones. It was definitely the one that was important. But then the second one around, we made nothing out of that, but that was that was so important to retain a company that was possibly on the was on the verge of existence. And to me, that was important because while there's no real financial reward out of it, it was just so good to know that both parts, like so we sold two businesses, one's the SMB and one's the enterprise part. Um, they both still exist today. And had we not been there, they probably wouldn't. Yeah. And that, that would have been a shame. Yeah. So, yeah. so you've put a lot of value on the experience. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. What's the outcome? What are we looking at? If I catch up with you in three or four years' time, where will you be? Uh, three or four years' time, hopefully doing a similar thing, hopefully biologically younger. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll can't, guarantee, can't guarantee that. We have to bring that. the marker in. Um, look, I'll be challenging. I don't know where technology will go, but challenging whatever the next tech is. That's kind of my my passion. Yeah, good, yeah. good man. Well, Tristan, I think there's been all these gold nuggets in the conversation and it's sometimes for people listening, just sharing your story even if you're not telling them what to do, which is the whole point of these podcasts. It's it's about inspiring some new thoughts, about giving the chance to reflect on someone who's done a lot, who's learned a lot, who's mm-hmm. you know come through challenges like we all do. Um, they're different, um, you know, but they're but to you, um, you know, f- to to say thank you to you is really important to me, mate. So appreciate you unpacking that. Appreciate everything you've offered today, and, and I want to wish you all the best. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>